Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, I talk with Marcus A. Clark, the director of episode four from volume one of Unsolved Mysteries, No Ride Home. 23-year-old Alonzo Brooks never returned home after attending a party at a farmhouse in rural Kansas. His body was found a month later, only 250 feet from the party location, an area that had already been searched by law enforcement multiple times. More than 16 years later, the manner and cause of his death still remain unknown. It's rumored that locals know what happened to Alonzo, but no one's talking. This was tragic for our family. I want answers now. It's been 15 years. It's too long. That town still hasn't said anything. And the people and the kids don't say shit. And I still wonder why. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode and then listen on. Before we get into my conversation with Marcus, here's a discussion I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband Kevin Flynn. Kevin's an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author and co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. Take a listen to our breakdown of the episode and reactions to the real-life mystery behind it. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. So this episode of Unsolved Mysteries, No Ride Home, Mm -hmm. very different than the other episodes we've seen so far, right? I think so. I think the tone is a lot darker. I think what makes a good episode of Unsolved Mysteries sometimes is that that it's such a brain teaser. Mm. And this is a lot more tantalizing in the idea that it looks like a mystery that ought to have been solved. Yeah. I mean, I really think the mystery here is why hasn't this, what seems to pretty obviously be a crime, been solved? Mm -hmm. You know, who at that party knew something and didn't talk? Why was the body found where it was found? When it was found. When it was found. The FBI has announced they are reopening the case as of earlier this month. They're offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of anyone responsible for the death of Alonzo Brooks. So 
the FBI believes there's a crime that's been committed. That's an indication yeah. of that, and, correct? And they should be looking at this episode. Absolutely. Because I think there's some really good stuff in here. Yeah, a lot of really good interviews. But let's first talk about right. um, Alonzo himself and his uh-huh. mother. When you center a case of a person who was killed and you really start with the family, mm-hmm. It does build up for me a real sense of dread when you sort of have a sense of who a person was and how much they're missed right at the start of a story, right? In stories like this, you always want to know who the emotional center is. And a lot of times when you have someone who's died, then the emotional center becomes the people around that person. Mm. Alonzo, he's known as Zoe to his Mm -hmm. friends and family, lives in Kansas. He decides to go with his friends one night to a party in Lacine that's Uh an hour away. It's 47 miles away and we hear about this drive down these dark country roads and then Mm -hmm. finding this house that's down this long gravel driveway next to a uh, creek. Already kind of a, a creepy foreboding setting to think about teens and young people at a party like this in the middle of nowhere And then there is one black man uh, among all of these white people who seem very comfortable using racist language right in front of him. Alonzo, you know, not uncommon, finds himself in a situation where he uh, is surrounded by a lot of white people and not a lot of people of color. And sometimes that's an issue and sometimes it's not. Hmm. And it started, it certainly seemed looking back that there were signs here that these might not be friendly strangers that right. he's around. The town we were in was definitely an all-white dominant town, Lacine was. Definitely, you know, there's some racism involved down there. It gets worse when you get down and, you know, go a little more further south. Obviously, that crap comes with the area. Right, yeah. I mean, his friend Justin says there were people at the party who, quote, had problems with people's skin color. Mm-hmm. I mean, he says that. And I just think, you know, uh, his friend Tyler says, you know, our group never really thought about race, you know, so we never brought it up. But I think the thing that white people, even so-called well-meaning white people forget, is that the whole I never think about race thing is something that only white people have the privilege of doing, right? Yeah. And and it's one thing if you say that because you want to say, yeah, I'm I'm a friend with this person and that's not an issue in our relationship. Right. It's something else if you say, I was with a black friend at a party with a bunch of strangers and everybody was white, and I didn't think about that, how it affects him. Mm. That's different. Right. And that's when you should be thinking about- That's when that's the right. only That's the only thing you should be thinking about as far as I'm concerned. Look, if he brought his friend's sister, mm. and she was the only woman at a party of 100 men, yeah. it would pop into your head that, wait a minute, maybe, there's a, maybe there could be a problem with this situation. Right. And, you know, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt thinking, oh, I'm going to be Pollyanna and everything's going to be fine. That was a miscalculation. Right. So he goes to the party with these three friends. He does ride with one of them, Justin. And through this, as they describe it, quasi comedy of errors, he gets left there. So what do you make of Justin? Okay, this was the guy who was supposed to be his ride. In the most generous of, of circumstances, you could say he, he really blew it as far as looking out for his friend. Mm. So Alonzo's mother calls Rodney. Rodney immediately knows something isn't right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't know any of Zoe's current friends, but he meets up with them. He meets up with Justin and the friends to go look for Zoe at the house where the party was. They get there and immediately they find his hat and his boots. 
one boot, right? And then another one someplace yes. else? Yes, one boot was on the other side of the street and one was on, you know, closer yeah. to the house. That is an incredibly ominous sign. It is, especially when you think about how it had rained. Mm-hmm. One would not be walking around without their boots in that kind of weather. Especially with a limp. We know he had hurt his ankle, which is right. why he was wearing the two pairs of socks so he could do his boots up really tight. That's a red flag immediately. So the county sheriff does a- agree to do a search eventually. Mm-hmm. They go down to Lacey and they search the creek. They report negative contact. Then the KBI gets mm-hmm. the case a couple days later yeah. with the sheriff's department assisting. They do an extensive search with dogs on the Monday after the party, just a couple of days after the party. And then the FBI gets involved because there is suspicion that Alonzo was the victim of a hate crime. They bring in an underwater rescue team. They search the creek. The deepest part of the creek was only three feet, and there's no indication a body was in the creek at all. Almost four weeks later, Mm -hmm. the sheriff finally give Alonzo's family the okay to go and, and search Right. The family is like not happy that they've been kept away from it for so long, but they're finally given permission to search. What do you think of the fact that this family all went to conduct this investigative search on their own? Oh, I mean, we see this a lot with missing people. They get frustrated because there's not a lot happening, you know, with the police search. Now, you know, looking at the the film, looking back, I mean, we did see helicopters and quite a lot of people policing the area and doing as good a job as they appear to be doing, sometimes that's enough and sometimes it's not. You know, as an investigator, you don't want family coming in because really you don't want the family finding a body for a multitude of reasons, Mm -hmm. both emotional and for investigative and everything like that. Right. They finally say, okay, go ahead. We can't say for a month that you can never go look. Mm. But it is very surprising that a half hour later that they're the ones that find So the forensic pathologist, uh, after discovering the body, says Alonzo could have drowned. There's no evidence, of course. There's been some animal damage to Mm -hmm. the body. But there is this thing that pops up in all of these Internet forums about rumors about Alonzo's death, that he had been kept in a shed, that he had been kept in the trunk of a car, that he was murdered. What do you make of all of this chatter online? Well, I think I think it's just chatter. Hmm. I mean, those people don't know anything more than you or I do. But as far as the idea that somebody at that party knows something, it's going to be one of two things. One is that Alonzo died as a result of misadventure. He, on his own, decided he was going to leave the party and... Take off his boots boots, and go in the creek? Maybe go swimming. No. Very (laughs) unlikely. Very unlikely. Very unlikely. It also could be that he went and decided he was going swimming with somebody else. And maybe it was an accident and something happened and and they're just too ashamed to come forward. But I still feel like... Well, that's a possibility. It's It seems a very small possibility. It's more likely that he left the house, the farmhouse, either with somebody or with somebody following him. Whoever that is, people there know that. Mm. So he either went out by himself, and that's the reason why nobody knows anything, or people at the party do. I mean, it's it's really that simple. There are some indications, though, that his body was moved. His decomposition and color weren't necessarily consistent with someone who'd been in the water for nearly a month. But given the sort of lack of decomposition, we're talking about a month yeah. in Kansas yeah. in you know a creek 
it does seem like perhaps without being too gross, there would be less to find uh, than what was ultimately found. And there was some speculation and there were some rumors that his body had been stored, perhaps in a freezer or a meat locker or something like that. And the pathologist says there's no way to prove or disprove that. Yeah. And that there are microscopic signs of freezing that, you know, there's kind of no way to disprove or to prove it definitively. Yeah. I don't, I'm not really feeling that, that it was part of a plan to store the body and then dump it in the same place everybody had been looking for it. I, that doesn't seem plausible to mm, me. Yeah. Is there a, a chance that, you know, the body fell or was stored or shoved someplace above water and then after rains and things like that and it got into the stream and then moved downstream? Based on what they've, they found, that's also a possibility. It is the simplest answer, but that doesn't mean it's the actual answer. And that's the problem why why this is an unsolved mystery, mm. because it's just not clear cut. It's also hard to imagine that if the FBI were involved and if they did interview people at the party, that they would get nothing out of all of these young people. I know that some of them lawyered mm. up, refused to give yeah. interviews, etc., it does sort of point to maybe a smaller group of people being involved in the actual potential crime rather than the entirety yeah. of, of the people at the party. One of the things that's really interesting to me is that the KBI in March of 2019, of course, this is now 15 years later, says there's no evidence that Alonzo was the victim of a crime and the investigation is closed. I found that very troubling. To me, the evidence that he was a victim of a crime is that he ended up dead in a creek 200 yards away from a place that people said that they didn't want him to be. Uh, Right. And now isn't the FBI saying that they believe there was a crime? So what do you make of this, the idea that law enforcement would flip-flop on this? Do you think maybe something has turned up in between then and now? Well, I don't know. I I couldn't speculate on more of what's there than what we have seen. Just thinking back to the scenarios, yeah, you're right. Maybe a smaller group. It seems unlikely that in the middle of a party they would have said, okay, we're going to have a fight that everybody could see and then nobody's going to say anything. Mm. Could it have been just a couple of little people and it's Alonzo and one other person or Alonzo and five other people or something else, then that's probably more likely. Now, we have seen this actually in books that we have written about crimes where years later, when you have teens that are together or young people that are together, they stick together because of their friendships and whatnot. They also and, stick together because they don't want their parents to find out what they were doing. That is an incredibly motivating factor for young people. Yeah. But like, go 15 years later, allegiances have changed and priorities are different and people have careers that they want to, and families and things that they want to protect that they didn't back you know, in the day. And it's because those alliances shift. You know, We have seen where someone says... Am I going to really, you know, lose everything in my life to protect somebody I went to high school with? That I haven't maybe spoken to. I haven't to spoken in to 10 in all years. this time, yeah. right? If somebody who is at the keg knew something and was questioned today, they may be more willing to say what they saw. Hmm. Looking at it again, certainly what happened at that party. I mean, that's all it comes down to. What happened at that party? And when Alonzo walked out the door, who was there with him. Yeah. If he stands out because he's the only person of color at a large party mm-hmm. and he's noticed by everybody, he would be noticed leaving. Yeah. Under any circumstance, whether he's, you know, just walking out or he's getting kicked out or whatever. The person closest to the door would have caught his eye going out. You know what also occurs to me? What? Even if this is very much the nightmare scenario, worst case scenario, like 
there are 50 or 100 people at this party and they are all so racist and full of hate that they would a not want this person there and then b go so far as to lie and cover up a crime that was committed against this person Mm -hmm. you want to think there's at least one person there who's maybe 10 percent less racist (laughs) who might just be weighing the consequences of being an accessory to a crime or maybe somebody who's 20 percent less racist so to me that does really speak to maybe i think a smaller group having perpetrated this crime uh it's hard to or an individual yeah it's it's very hard to imagine that you'd get 50 60 70 100 people to cover something up for 15 years although i guess history has showed us that that does happen I mean, I think you can understand living in a small town, having a secret, Mm -hmm. whether it's your secret to keep or not, not wanting to be the one to blow the whistle. Right. I mean, we see that in small towns. We see that in big cities. We live in a small town. We know. (laughs) People think of the idea of, quote, not snitching. Very often what it is is I don't want to get involved. Or I don't want the consequences of right. being the one. I don't want who to keep living in this town right. when I'm the one who ratted out my friends. Right, right, right. And that's not just a big city thing. It's also very much a small town More thing so. as well. More so. Yeah. If there are people that know things, then they need to step up. Mm. Now's the time. Now is the time, especially if I don't live in Lacine anymore. I have to say, of the Unsolved Mysteries cases we've talked about so far, I really hope someone comes forward with something in this one probably the most it makes me really upset to think that this family has been living with this loss for so long when it seems clear at least to me as a viewer that what happened is a hate crime and deserves justice Mm -hmm. yeah agreed all right kevin thanks for talking with me about this episode i really appreciate it you're welcome thanks again to kevin flynn my favorite person to watch netflix with Now, here's my conversation with director Marcus A. Clark. Marcus, thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to include me in this. Were you a fan of Unsolved Mysteries before you worked on this project? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries as a kid, Um, you know, with my parents late at night, probably times when I should have been sleeping. Um, <laughs> I, I would stay up, I'd hear the music. Uh, you know, I was I was a big fan as a kid. It's very nostalgic and it's an incredible opportunity and experience to be a part of the reboot for Unsolved Mysteries. So I'm incredibly excited. Well, I'm excited too. And actually, I was really excited that this particular case was featured on the series. It I don't think is your typical Unsolved Mysteries case. It's the story of a young black man in a small American town that very likely uh, he died as the result of a hate crime. I mean, some might even use the word lynching in this case if we're you know, mm-hmm. going to really talk about what could have happened here. What do you think is the central mystery here in this Alonzo Brooks case? Is it why was this never solved? Is it why is no one saying anything? Or is it is it simply what happened to him? Well, I think when you look at the Alonzo Brooks story, there's a, several troubling factors um, about what happened here. And, and the mystery is not only what happened to Alonzo, it's why whatever happened to Alonzo happened. Like, what was the motivation for this crime, uh, for this killing? But also, even more mysterious is there's a lapse of time in which Alonzo was missing and the body was not found. I want to say it's about uh, about a month, about 30 days roughly, give or take, where Alonzo's missing. There's no sight of him. There's no real trace or, or sighting of him. And this time, the authorities are searching for him. 
Local authorities are searching. The KBI is searching for him. Um, they have dogs. They have cadaver dogs. Um, they're apparently combing the area, allegedly. And during this whole time, he's not discovered. He's not found. And then, you know, 30 days later, a month or so later, his family organizes a volunteer group, family and friends, uh, people who care, who are concerned, amateurs. And they go out and search the same area, and they find Alonzo's body, tragically, within about 30 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour. And so where was Alonzo during this time is a question that remains. And so the mystery in this situation it has several layers, and all of those layers are troubling, especially when you look at them through the lens of what's kind of taking place in the, you know, the climate of America right now. I think it's impossible to not look at it through that lens. I mean, I know that of all the episodes we've watched so far, I certainly probably felt the most anger and the biggest sense of desperation around really hoping something happens here. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of people at this party. We hear that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Why is it you think that none of these people, ostensibly, I mean, some of the files are still sealed, obviously, but it seems that nobody of the dozens and dozens of people that were at this party provided any information that led police, the KBI, or the FBI so far to figure out exactly how Alonzo died. Why this this, this lack of, I mean, it feels like a void when you're watching this. You're like, I mean, isn't there somebody who would be willing to give something up here? Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, you know, I I firmly believe that someone knows. Um, I think more than, you know, more than someone, I think people know. Um, and I think that's another really big concern in in this case. How has this been able to be kept so silent without any, you know, legitimate leads um, or clues or tips or, you know, people coming forward to give any sort of information? So it begs the question, how many people were involved? How many people did actually witness this? And then what transpired thereafter? You know, I can only speculate whether or not somebody was told not to speak or perhaps persuaded not to talk. I'm not really sure, but you have to ask all those questions when something like this happens at a party where seemingly people were there in a town where there's not that many residents, you know, population is is relatively low. And there's all these kids there. So, you know, that's one layer. Uh, Alonzo was 23 when this happened. And so from what we have kind of dug up, the people at the party, the kids at the party were, you know, anywhere between the ages of 18 and um, 23, 25, let's say. But we're, we're talking about teenagers and, and young adults. And so, you know, fear could play into it. Intimidation could play into it. I'm not sure. But I know that, you know, it's been a real impasse that the information coming out of that area um, hasn't been more fluid. I'll also say that I think, as we talk about race playing a role, Alonzo was 45 minutes to an hour away from where he lives. And so he's an outsider in a, in a very tight-knit and small community. And so, you know, as we've seen with some of these other cases with African-Americans trying to find justice for atrocities, when you're an outsider, it further complicates, you know, that process and that mission. In my opinion, you have to have a strong incentive to want to solve uh, a case mm-hmm. like this and want to investigate and ask the tough questions and, you know, turn over stones all around the place, regardless of people's stature or people, what people might think. It's, you know, there's a it's tougher for outsiders to to um, get the same type of justice that, that they deserve. 
No, you're absolutely right. You know, I live in a small town. Uh, my husband and I have actually wrote one of the true crime books we wrote was about a case that the the killer lived in the town we lived in. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this a lot. It's that, you know, with this dynamic, and I'm not from here originally, so even though I've lived here 20 years, I'm seen as an outsider. But then also there's this sense of, A, you know, I live here. I have to go to the market here. I'm going to see these people all the time, and then I'll forever be the person who said something. But there's also a sense, and I don't think people can really understate this, especially with young people, about wanting to not get involved, wanting to run from the prospect of doing something that's hard that then mm-hmm. will then define their life for the next year or uh, two or three if there's a trial, if there's an ongoing police investigation. And then you add the element into it that this place lay seen that no one in your episode seems to dispute is a racist place. I'm curious, did you go there? Did you spend time there? And if so, what was it like? I did spend time there for this episode, a uh, considerable amount of time in Lacine. Um, you know, for me, it was a it was a difficult experience to say the least. You know, I'm an African American male um, from Brooklyn, New York, originally born and raised. Uh, you know, Lacine, Kansas, is a very different experience for me. I was very uncomfortable the entire time I was there. Just to be completely honest with you. Um, you know, I took precautions. We took precautions as a production to make sure, you know, things were looked after and, and safety was always an issue. But uh, I, I did. I felt incredibly uncomfortable. It, it, it's uh, hard to put your finger on, but you can feel it. You can feel the eyes. You can feel uh, people don't want you there. You can feel, you know, a certain level of disdain in the air, uh, in the temperature when you're talking to people there. Um, I did not feel welcome. Uh, that was very clear to me. Uh, I, I, you know, had to watch my back considerably while I was there. And, you know, it's one of those situations where, you know, I think America is coming to an awakening now that, uh, that is way overdue. You know, a lot of people, um, have been under the impression that we're living in a post-racial society or, or didn't even believe in racism anymore or thought, you know, racism is dead. Um, there are people who want to say that they don't see color, which isn't productive. Um, no. You know, and it's, it's not, not fair. It's, not, it's fair. not fair. It's not fair. It's not productive. And when you argue that you don't see color or don't see these issues, you put African Americans' lives in jeopardy. Correct. Um, and because because it's not safe in a lot of situations, and so it's troubling. And knowing what happened to Alonzo, and knowing what took place there, um, I was not willing to take any chances that this was some quote unquote accident. When you grow up African American in this country. You understand that you have to take certain precautions um, around situations like this because, you know, something as simple as going for a jog like a Mont Arbery can land you, you know, getting chased down and gunned down in the street like an animal. And right. so these are the things um, that we live with. And, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, anxiety and temperature does play a role. Um, and so I felt that and I could feel that energy while I was there. And, and it's very unsettling. Um, mm. to say the least. So, But I knew that that was going to be an obstacle, and I also knew it was going to be a challenge, and I also knew that that's the energy the episode needed. And that's so, right. yeah, and so, I, you know, I try to channel that energy and that uncomfortability and that almost claustrophobia of the situation. You know, you're, you're, you're stuck, you're trapped, you have no, you're far from home, you have no ride, you have no assistance, you have no one to lean on. And so, you know, I really wanted that energy to come through in the episode. Honestly, I had so much dread watching this episode, which I know is 
intentional and I actually think reflective of the kind of dread that a lot of people have in their daily experiences that someone like me, a white woman living in New Hampshire, can't necessarily relate to. But it was very, very affecting. And I'll tell you, the minute I heard Alonzo's friend say, you know, we didn't see race. I'm like, well, lucky you. Like, you didn't see race. You know, it's unfair. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Alonzo, every black person you know has no choice but to see race every moment of their lives. So if you get nothing out of this conversation uh, other than this, never say we don't see race ever again because it's not fair and it actually perpetuates uh, the foundations of, of what support white supremacy when you walk around the world believing that. Okay, there's my PSA on that for Absolutely. today. I mean, you're you're 100% right. It's it's uh when you say you don't see race or when you don't acknowledge um the history that this country has, the history of atrocities, the history of the treatment of African Americans, it minimizes the experience. It also minimizes the danger. You know, that can put you in a really precarious situation. My friends aren't allowed to not see race. Right. You know, you're not allowed or we can't be friends because it's such a defining characteristic of my experience um, of who I am, but also survival. And there is a certain amount of survival tactics uh, that revolve around common sense, but also just caution when you're in situations where you're either outnumbered or you don't have people with good intentions around you that you can trust. You know, it it just these situations are actually life and death. And that's what we're seeing in the Alonzo case. That's right. And I think when you live in a place and you're taking your friend to a place like Lacine, if you're not proactive about it, you know, you are at least somewhat responsible whether or not you believe you are or not. I, I do want to talk about Alonzo's friends. Um, you ahead. interview them for the documentary. You talk with, you know, Tyler and Daniel and, and Justin in particular, who was Alonzo's ride. Right. Um, I'm just curious what you think of these kids and the way they talk about bringing him there, hearing the racist comments in the first few minutes that they're there, seeing their friend in trouble, and then sort of making the assumption again and again and again, oh, he's fine. He's fine. He has a ride. He's fine. I'm going to go get cigarettes. He'll be fine. Yeah, this is um, this is a big part of the story that uh, is very questionable, uh, to say the least. You know, I spoke with his friends, um, Danny, Tyler, and Justin. I also spoke with his best friend, Rodney, um, mm. which was actually a really helpful uh, counterbalance to, to, to what I'm hearing from his other friends. And I think that the way that they talk about what happened and go through their stories is is troubling to me. Um, there is a certain, in my opinion only, uh, emotional disconnect um, that I do experience and, and see there. You know, you brought your friend to the party. You know, when you're friends and you go to a party, as a lot of people do as their friends, they, they know we go together, we come home together. Um, and if we don't come home together, we make sure, ensure that you are safe. You have a way, a method is confirmed for you to get home, particularly when you're an hour away in the middle of Kansas. This is not a place right. where you can take a bus. You can't hop on the train. You can't just get in a taxi and go home. You would be stranded. And so I have a lot of trouble understanding how a friend could be stranded in a situation like this. Now, back to what we said about race before and people claiming that they don't see color. You're not allowed to do that. You go to a party with your friend and people are throwing around the N-word. That is a red flag. That is a very serious red flag. I might leave right then. I might, you know, an altercation might ensue, but then you have to go. Like, this is not safe space, Um, particularly when people are drinking. 
Um, you don't know if people were doing, we, we don't know if people were doing drugs or any other substances, but if you're at a party in the middle of nowhere and you're with some kids, things elevate and the temperature changes um, very quickly when people are intoxicated. I think there's a lot of questions around uh, around the friends and, and how they left him and what actually happened and who left when. Um, what did they see? What is this altercation that, you know, one friend describes they got in a little bit of a scuffle and the N-word is being thrown around and Justin is telling me that he's just having a good time the whole time and he was just in a great mood. Um, that's an issue. That's a disconnect. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there are discrepancies in the stories of the friends that do not add up. Um, however... You know, I'm not going to put it all on them because they did speak to us. And to me, right. that there is merit and integrity in people coming forward, you know, however confused they might be, to, to share what information they do have. And so I thank them for that. But if there's anything else that they do know, um, you know, I urge them to come forward and speak because they live in surrounding towns. They have friends in these areas. They know people. I would be hard-pressed to think that they haven't heard or haven't, you know, run into any kind of information or tips that might be useful. Marcus, can you tell me a little bit about this rumor that's cropped up about Alonzo and a girl at this party? Yeah, of course. So, you know, one of the things that has been, you know, revealed is potential interest uh, in a white girl who was at this party or vice versa that she was interested in Alonzo. You know, we've heard that this potentially had something to do with an altercation um, that took place at the party. Uh, You know, and so... Who is this person is a question. Um, we know in the history, you know, if you think about Emmett Till and what happened to him mm. um, in Mississippi, you know, this wouldn't have been the first time that a situation like interracial dating or, you know, a black guy hitting on a white girl could have led to an escalation in the tension. And so that's something that really needs to be looked at as a potential motivator for what happened here. You know, while I was down there, I did a lot of research. Um, I met other people who are not necessarily uh, in the episode who shared some information with me about this potential theory, uh, rumor of this girl. And so I thought that was really interesting. So it, apparently, you know, it happened in the middle of production. And so I, I think next up, I had a couple interviews with the friends. You know, Alonzo played football. Alonzo was charismatic. He was good at football, important. He was charismatic. He's a handsome man. He was liked by a lot of people. He has white friends and he has black friends. Alonzo is somewhat popular to some, to some mm-hmm. you know, however you want to qualify that. And so I asked his friend at some point in our conversation, what type of girls did Alonzo like? What type of girls did Alonzo date? Did Alonzo date girls? Like, all fair questions. Like, what is the, what was the, have you ever seen him in any romantic situation? Have you ever seen, did Alonzo have a girlfriend? All of these questions, I got an I don't know. I'm not really sure about that. You know, i never seen Alonzo with a girl. I've never seen Alonzo with a guy. There's no, and so I'm like, you guys played football together. You were friends. You hung out together, allegedly. And no one can tell me about any love interest at all that Alonzo had or could have had or might have had, that to me is very peculiar. I even said in the interview, that's not weird to you? That doesn't seem bizarre to you that you can't answer that question? Um, That's troubling to me, again, because, because one, there's this rumor that a girl was at the party and that he was flirting with her. Um, That can't be overlooked because that triggers people. Mm -hmm. If that did happen, that is a trigger for people who are racist. 
And so if that were happening, that adds another layer of what could have happened here. Was Alonzo hooking up with this girl at the party? Did they sneak off into a corner or a room upstairs? Um, did someone see them go up there? And did, did people then interrupt this process, you know, interrupt a hookup, which is which would explain why his boots and socks weren't on? Um, mm. You know what I mean? Like, was he dragged out of a room in the middle of a hookup? Um, was this someone's sister? Was this someone's, uh, you know, someone's girlfriend? What? I need to know that. And the fact that I couldn't get any real legitimate information on this part of Alonzo's life from his quote unquote friends um, is extremely dubious. So that immediately was a red flag um, to me because, you know, whatever your orientation, someone, a friend, a close friend would be able to speak to that in some capacity. And so right. there's a there's a there's a blank spot in that subject. And to me, that signals that something else is on the other side of that question. I have a question for you about the investigation, um, because the FBI got involved in the case because it was considered a possible hate crime. Can you just tell me a little bit about that part of the investigation, how the FBI got involved? You know, did they actually uncover anything? Did they talk to people? Because that that it seems to me like when the FBI gets involved is when you would shake something out of some trees. Right. I mean, that's typically you bring in this you know, federal agency, you'd think that if nothing else, somebody might say something to the FBI. Right. You would you would hope so. Um, so from what I understand and from what I re- um, remember from this, the research going into this, you know, local authorities started the search first, um, of course, because they were the first people with the information. And then I believe the KBI got involved. And because, you know, only African-American at the party um, and he's gone missing for so long, I think after the body was found, the FBI got involved to to determine whether or not it was a hate crime. The FBI is only going to get involved in a situation like this if it is determined that it is, in fact, a hate crime. And mm-hmm. I think at the time that they were involved or at least checking out the case, there was nothing to definitively suggest other than circumstantial evidence um, that it was a hate crime. And so they sort of backed off of the case uh, because that would be their le- level of involvement. And so um, once once they're not involved, it's the KBI and it's the Lynn County uh, Sheriff's Office that would have been controlling the investigation and running the investigation. Um, mm-hmm. So now the FBI has reopened the case. Um, I think it's more clear that it was a potential hate crime. And I think, again, with the temperature that's going on in the country is why they've you know changed their kind of position on this um, and put a hundred thousand dollar reward out for any information, which is you know very significant. Um, when we started filming, The case was closed. It was officially closed. Um, We got written statements from law enforcement um, to to explain, uh, clarify why it was closed, how it was closed, because there's been no information. There's been no answers. And so how do you close a case where there's still no answers? Um, So that on the surface appeared somewhat improper. um, But now it has been reopened, which is, you know, which is a blessing for the family and hopefully help them get justice. Do you know why the case was reopened? Was there an event that that spurred that? Was it the release of this episode or was it this understanding that it was going to come in the public eye again? Well, I think there evidence potentially that came out. Well, I'm not sure about whether or not evidence came out, but I do know that about three or four weeks prior to the release of Unsolved Mysteries, the FBI had released a statement that it was, in fact, reopened a year ago, shortly after inquiries from our team, Netflix and Unsolved Mysteries 
in terms of pursuing this particular case. We had reached out them for the statements. We had reached out for additional information on the case, um, files, you know, basically everything they had. And apparently this request and the word that we were going to, you know, delve into this um, spurred them new interest in the case. Mm -hmm. And so it just so happens that they happened (laughs) to announce the reopening of the case three or four weeks before the episode premiered. But nonetheless, it's reopened, so I'm grateful for that. But the timing is a little bit interesting. Um, but again, it's high time for this stuff. And with this, you know, with this awakening the country is going to to racial issues, this is the kind of thing that these kinds of cases can no longer be swept under the rug. That's right. That's right. And there's accountability. I mean, whether or not it was a proactive move in order to get people to not call their office because they can just say it's an open case, we can't discuss it or not, mm-hmm. it uh, was the right thing for them to do. So, Absolutely. you know, whatever the cause, let's just applaud the outcome just for a second there. Good on Absolutely. you, FBI. 100%. 100%. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is, with all due respect, I, I do have respect for the FBI in terms of what they do. Um, yeah. This is what they do. They're, again, there aren't that many residents in the town. <laughs> You know, this, this, they have to get on this. This should be solvable. They should be able to uh, thoroughly investigate and, you know, uncover every stone and talk to everybody of interest, um, you know, to shake the trees and find out what's going on here. I do have faith that this case is going to be solved um, and that they're going to stumble upon something. Well, the FBI is the nation's primary law enforcement agency for civil rights cases and for uh, cases of rights violations. So, no, I agree with you. They are the right agency to be on it. Um, You know, the other reason I think it's important that the FBI is involved is because, again, this took place in a very small town. And small towns work and operate very differently than, you know, other cities or other municipalities that you might think of. You know, we're, we're talking about a place where there's, at that time, there's only a handful of officers that run that town. And a handful, I mean like two, maybe three. And so in order... For a case like this, in my opinion, to get justice, it does need a higher level of law enforcement, a higher level of oversight. Because Mm -hmm. in these small towns, as you know, everyone knows everyone. Um, A lot of people are related. Uh, A lot of people's family members are there um, who work in town, who may be in law enforcement, who may be in, who knows, the judicial sector. People of, you know, all of those people are are interconnected in a way. And again, if you have this outsider, this outside case, uh, somebody who might not have been welcome, um, who might not have been wanted there, who not ha- might not have been respected there, um, you have to look outside for some other level of law enforcement to come in and supervise and oversee and go deeper on what's happening. Um, mm. You know, I think it's only it's only right. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the medical examiner's conclusions around Alonzo's body. I mean, there's a lot of questions about whether or not his body was moved, whether or not it had been stored. And and I'd love to talk about some of that online speculation around that in a minute. But I'm really curious about this report, which seems woefully inconclusive to me, especially given the circumstances around what appears to be a hate crime. I'm curious to know your thoughts on that and whether or not you know of any follow-up examination or reports were done after that. So I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, so yeah, the, the medical examiner on this particular case, Dr. Eric Mitchell, um, I have a lot of issues with his report and his examination and his conclusions. 
Um, to be honest with you, they're, they're dubious at best. Um, they seemingly miss a lot of details or leave a lot of unanswered questions. Um, one of the first things is Alonzo's body was found by his brother, and he describes it as he looked, quote-unquote, normal. He, his his mm. skin wasn't discolored. He was not bloated. He was not disfigured. Um, he did not look like he had been sitting in water for 30 days. This fact matters a lot. You know, we saw in Katrina what happens when bodies lay in water. Um, mm-hmm. They bloat. They become purple. They become wildly disfigured, um, gruesome-looking. Uh, for his closest family member, his brother, to find him and not describe any of that. And in fact, his description is quite the contrary, that he looked like he was just resting there. He could have, you know, in after another circumstance. After, after a month. After a month. After a month in a creek where I've been to this creek, you know, there's there's water in the creek. The water level rises and lowers depending on the weather. But this is a, a creek with flowing water. Um there's, you know, what you call strainers, uh, which is what she was found on, which is like almost like a dam of sticks and debris that he was resting on top of in the middle of this creek. And so there's a lot of, um, I guess, uh, decomposition and other things that you'd expect all over the body that just seemingly were not there. Um, you know, to, to suggest he drowned is just ridiculous. In addition, you see Maria go through the belongings that were found, his mother Maria, um, in his pocket on his person. This includes his wallet. Um, this includes pay stubs that he had on him, um, his video card. Like all of these materials are not water lodged. They're not, uh, you know, when you get a piece of paper like a pay stub and, and it, you're in the rain and a drip of water falls on it, the ink, you know, spills, it, it, it splits, it bleeds. None of that is present on the objects that were found on him. So so it does not appear that he was submerged in water. Um, okay? There's no water in the lungs. So, so this man did not drown. We know this. And it doesn't seem like the medical examiner is, is getting us to that point. Um, a lot of the, the, the quote-unquote rhetoric just seems like empty answers to a case that should have had a further examination of, of what, what is actually happening here. The other thing that gets that's really significant, especially if you're an African-American in this country, to be glazed over is the skin around Alonzo's neck was missing. OK, the skin in the flesh was missing. And so and just around his neck. That's incredibly important um, because you know, and, you know, the medical examiner suggests that animals or bugs could have eaten away at his neck and. That's, you know, we just his neck and we can't we can, you know, we, we you know, who knows what could have happened because animals and insects got to him. So, wait, I'm confused. Do animals and insects only target the neck? Is the neck more delicious for an animal or an insect than other parts of the body? How do they avoid the ears and the nose and the, the lips and other fatty areas, fatty tissue on the body? What animal targets the neck? I'm unfamiliar with anim, any animal that does so. And so the, the the fact that that is offered as any type of explanation um, is incredulous. It's ridiculous. Again, it's dubious at best. It doesn't add up. And so, again, if you're going to say you don't see race, um, not that he said that because he didn't, but I'm saying as, as a principle, you have to look at something like that with a greater level of scrutiny um, because of the historical precedent. And so given that this is a black man, given that this occurred in the South, 
and that I need an explanation for where the skin on his neck went. Um, if it was eaten off, why was it eaten off and how? Was something put there to be eaten off? Um, did something happen to his neck in which the only way to hide it or to mask what was done is to remove the flesh on the neck? Um, there needs to be an answer there. You know, was he strangled? The medical examiner says he cannot determine strangulation. Okay. Well, you know, there's a long history of, of, of black people being treated like animals. Um, your neck is where a collar goes. Uh, you know, your neck is where you would be, you could be restrained. And so all of these things, all these factors need greater scrutiny. I need better information. Um, I need more reliable information. And I need critical thinking because it doesn't seem like any of that happened. Marcus, can I ask you about the online speculation around this case, the blog posts, the the stories that kind of cropped up and how in another case they might be, you know, they might be less important. They might be things that you just say, oh, that's just gossip. But why are they important in this case? So the blog is the blog is incredibly important because since Alonzo's death, since his disappearance, this blog has been kind of the center point for people in that area of Kansas in that you know respective community to anonymously post and anonymously discuss this case and so the blog is 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 troubling um, because apparently a lot of people were still there and so if you read through the comments you know of course there's there's rumors there's speculation there's outlandish comments but if you read through the threads and kind of connect loosely the dots of of what people are describing um, there's a lot of different theories that have come out of that blog um, there are people who anonymously allege that they witnessed Alonzo running down that driveway. The driveway from the house is a very long, extensive uh, driveway, you know, country road, kind of dirt road driveway. And so on the blog, people have described him running from a truck and being chased by guys in a truck screaming the N-word. We've heard from the blog that he was potentially dragged by a truck, which is you know, brings back all kinds of nightmarish memories of other African-Americans who've been dragged in Texas and in other locations where, where we know these things have, have occurred. And so the blog is an issue because there's seemingly a lot of people who have know or who have heard people who may have been involved potentially or may have had a hand in, in, in hiding the body. And so the rumors um, beg another question of who knows what and how many people are actually credible. Um, I don't think everybody on the blog is credible. I'll be very clear. There's a no, lot of are. people just throwing names out. They never <laughs> yeah. are. But I do think there is truth in there because people can speak freely without the, the thought of ridicule or retribution because they are anonymous. Um, and so the blog's really important in terms of sharing the information and getting some people to come forward. But it also is just frightening that there's so many people who seemingly know what happened um, who still have yet to come to come forward. Uh just backing up for a second about the mystery of kind of what happened here with the decomp. The, the other issue from the blog came an idea or a rumor that was substantiated by other people that we spoke to that Alonzo might have been kept in a freezer, which would explain how he was missing for that 30-day period um, and without the massive amounts of decomposition that you'd think you'd expect. Um, the medical examiner did suggest that he didn't see any signs of freezer burn. But then again, if you're missing for that much time, 
you have to wonder if there was some type of preservation going on to the body or, or was he just held somewhere for days? We don't know. We don't know if he was killed that night. We don't know if he was killed three weeks later after being tortured. We have no idea what happened. The blog raises all those questions. Um, and that's a big mystery in the case. Where was his body? How was it preserved? And, and when was he actually killed? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. We also know that the medical examiner may not have been looking for that. You know, it's easy to sort of uh, Monday morning quarterback your work when questions come up. But if that's not the focus of your work, it's it's hard to know, right? Of course. I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the blog. I'd love for someone to do a data map of it and just, you know, overlay IP addresses and responses and just create like a pattern mm-hmm. grid. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. possible. It has happened in other cases and other, you know, online detective work where people are able to do that. It would be interesting to see if there's anyone maybe is in response to this episode who can who has that expertise. Um, You spend a lot of time in the episode with Alonzo's family, which as a viewer, I really appreciated Maria Ramirez, Billy, Cindy, Demetria, Felicia, uh, his siblings, Edward, uh, his uncle, his best friend, Rodney. They are still heartbroken, of course, but the pain, it just seems to be so heightened by the layers of obfuscation and, I think, denial around the possibilities in this case. What was it like spending so much time with them, and why was it important for you to include all of them in the episode? Yeah, the family, um, you know, this was, to say the least, this was a really important case, um, but it was also something really close to my heart uh, because of the subject matter and because of what potentially could have happened to Alonzo. And so the family is, they've been dealing with this for 16 years. This is their son. This is their brother. This is their story. um, And it's their tragedy. Sometimes I think about, you know, if he was, you know, being jumped or something, you know, he could have been calling out for me, you know, as well, you know, calling out for his big brother to come and help him. So I didn't get that opportunity. The family is incredibly important. You know, you have to have viewers emotionally connect with the subjects of what's going on. Um, That's part of the beauty and the magic of the show is, you know, we want you to connect with the family. We want you to feel what they are feeling, what they are experiencing. You know, they, they are grieving. They are mourning. This death has been devastating to their family. Um, I cannot imagine any family going through something like this um, in, with any kind of capacity to deal with it. And so all of their good memories um, and all of their positive memories about Alonzo, along with telling their story, is incredibly important to, to the authenticity, but and also just seeing the effects of what this has done um, to a family, they lost someone they love. They lost someone they cared about um, in the most tragic and gruesome way. Um, and I think that people out there need to see it because that will help some type of sympathy or empathy for what they're going through, um, hopefully urging people to come forward. Um, you know, everyone, ha- I mean, a lot of people have children and have you know daughters, sons, and, you know, to think of this happening to you or to your family um, I think it, it is another part of what it takes to urge people to come forward. Um, they took this up on their back. Billy, incredibly strong human being, um, was out there searching for his brother 
when authorities failed them. He had to stand there and see his brother's body. That is devastating. Um, no family should have to go through that. No brother should have to experience that. And so the family is the centerpiece of the story. Um, they're the ones who, who need to tell the story. And they deserve this outlet um, to have this level of publicity and then have this level of exposure to what happened um, gives them the best chance possible to get answers. The FBI has put out a big reward for information leading to conclusion in this case. And now there is this episode on this incredibly popular series of Unsolved Mysteries episodes on Netflix. How hopeful are you that we'll get answers as to what happened to Alonzo Brooks? Incredibly hopeful. In fact, I think Alonzo's story, Alonzo Brooks' story, has the best chance, in my opinion, um, of getting solved um, of getting some traction on the case and finding out who was responsible. I personally think it's only a matter of time um, in this situation because of the exposure that you get with Netflix and because of just where we are with communication and technology now. You know, the blog that we were talking about, that was kind of the only way then to anonymously have this conversation and to give tips. Now, the way the internet is, the way Twitter is, the way the website with Unsolved Mysteries is and people are allowed to come in and and share that information, it happens that much faster. It's like tenfold faster. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries has an incredible track record of um, leading to getting cases resolved or getting cases solved or finding a conviction. And so in a series with six episodes, we have a fairly good chance of one getting solved. And I'm going to put my money on that being the Alonzo Brooks story. No Ride Home is the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Marcus A. Clark is the director. This was a very, very difficult and very important episode, and I really i am so glad to talk to you about it. Thank you so, so much. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We've reached the end of this week's episode. Thanks again to Marcus A. Clark. Loyal fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you have any leads on what might have happened to Alonzo Brooks, go to unsolved.com to share tips or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Episode 5, Berkshire's UFO. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. Hey listeners, I'm Erica Kiros, producer for You Can't Make This Up, with one final, final note. Since this interview was taped, there has been a major development in the Brooks case. According to KSNT, the local NBC News affiliate in Topeka, Alonzo's body was recently exhumed. This development comes only a few weeks after the FBI announced that they are investigating Alonzo's death as a potential racially motivated crime and offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest, prosecution, and conviction of the individual or individuals that may be responsible for Alonzo Brooks' death.